If you have your Bibles, God's Word, please open them to Genesis chapter 26 with me this morning. Genesis chapter 26, as you remember, last week we entered into the third main section of this book of Genesis. Today we are entering into just over the halfway point uh, in these 50 chapters of the book of Genesis. How good it has been for our souls. Church, let's continue to lean in and to receive from God this morning. Genesis 26 says this. Now, there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerah to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands." And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerah. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One, one of the people might have easily lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerah and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerah quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Isek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. 
So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gera with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Philcol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of that city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Folks, there have been more than 15,000 books written about Abraham Lincoln. Over 15,000 books. There are, in fact, more books written about Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States, than any other human that has ever lived except for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you go to Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., where, where Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, you will find on display there over 7,000 of these books stacked into a 34-foot tower. The, the sheer volume of words written about Abraham Lincoln shows the impact that he had on this world throughout his life. But what about Isaac? How much is written about Isaac, the child of promise in our Bibles? One chapter. We, we only have one single chapter that is fully devoted to the life of Isaac. He, he's mentioned in a few other chapters, but not in any significant way. He only has one full chapter devoted to him. And folks, even this one chapter is not very impressive. So several preachers, several commentators skip right over Genesis 26 because it just repeats many of the same things that we have already learned as we have studied Isaac's father, Abraham. Many commentators say that Genesis 26 is really just an interlude passage, a hinge passage in the narrative. They say it's a placeholder through which Moses just begins to transition towards the life of Jacob. Folks, when we see one chapter about Isaac and, and almost nothing new about him that we haven't learned through Abraham, we can begin to wonder, what is the significance of this? Was Isaac just a placeholder? Did, did his life matter in any way? Did God care about Isaac or was Isaac just a tool in God's hand as he writes a bigger story? Folks, do our lives matter? We, we might not ever have 15,000 books written about us, and so what significance do we have? Or are we just placeholders in the story that God is writing? Well, friends, this text shows us in very significant ways that Isaac's life did matter. 
Now, it didn't matter just because of the long list of things that he had done. It it didn't matter because of the new trails that he blazed in his life or the long list of accomplishments on his resume. No, Isaac's life mattered like all of our lives matter today for this simple reason. God was with him. God was with him. God's presence was with Isaac. And so even though Isaac's life in this chapter seems remarkably unremarkable, he is still a powerful testimony to who God is in the lives of his people and to us here today. Folks, as as ordinary as this passage makes Isaac's life seem in in this, it it highlights the, the extraordinary presence of God in his life. Folks, here's the main idea of our message today. God's presence in our lives is the greatest reality of our lives and gives significant meaning and purpose to our lives. Let let me read that again. Let's leave it up for a, a few extra seconds this morning. God's presence in our lives is the greatest reality of our lives and gives significant meaning and purpose to our lives. That's our main idea, and in order to see this more fully, we have, we have four points to help us to consider this. Point number one, the promise of God's presence. That's in verses one to five. Point number two, the patience of God's presence. That's in verses six to 16. Point number three, the purpose of God's presence, verses 17 to 33. And then point number four, the people of God's presence, verses 34 and 35. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, the promise of God's presence. We see this right away in verses one to five. Verse one tells us that there was a famine in the land and that Isaac went to Gerah in order to survive the famine. Now, interestingly, the Lord directly instructs Isaac not to make the same mistake as his father Abraham had in chapter 12 when he went down to Egypt. God instructs Isaac to not allow the need of the moment to lead him towards disobedience like Abraham had. Isaac was to stay within the boundaries of the promised land and not seek help from the land of Egypt. But now, look at verse 3. God continues to speak to Isaac and he says, sojourn in this land. Folks, that word sojourn, which I just learned to say correctly this month apparently... That that word sojourn means to to travel and to live temporarily in a land that does not belong to you. God is explicitly telling Isaac to live as a foreigner, to live in a a temporary state. To to be a sojourner means that that you don't have security, that, that you don't have protection. And so in the same way that Abraham, Isaac's father, had to leave the land of Ur and thereby leave the security of his home and his father's house, so Isaac would be a sojourner as well. So God tells him to live in this very vulnerable position. Friends, it's hard to be a sojourner. It's scary to be a sojourner. All of us want the stability of a home. All of us want the stability of a a retirement plan. All of us want the the security and the hope of an established family or or a marriage relationship. We we don't want to be alone. We don't don't want to live a a fleeting life. No, we want substance. and, And as people, we want stability. But folks, what we see in the lives of the patriarchs is that, is that substance and stability do not come from the same sources for us as God's people as they do for others in the world. 
Folks, none of us should want 15,000 books written about us that highlight our earthly substance and stability and position. No, our hope, our security is not in our physical position or power, but rather in our spiritual relationship with God himself. Look, look at what it says in the very next verse. God's, God continues to speak. He says, sojourn in this land. Listen to these words. And I will be with you. As the story shifts from Abraham to Isaac, God reiterates the same truths about land and about descendants that he had spoken to Abraham. But now he, he expands these promises and he expands them mainly in this. He says, yes, I can give you land. Yes, I can give you people. But Isaac, before I promise you those things, the first thing that I promise you is myself. He says, I will be with you. Folks, God had never said those words to Abraham. He, he had promised to do many things for Abraham. People like Abimelech in chapter 21 looked at Abraham's life and had said, it's very clear that God is with you. But God had never said these words, I will be with you. And so God, God expands his promises to Isaac and his, his presence, his active presence becomes central to Isaac's life and to this text. We, we see it repeated again in the text down in verse 24 when God says, fear not. Fear not, for I am with you. And again in verse 28, when Abimelech says, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. And then, folks, we, we see these words, I will be with you, become a regular part of God's promise to his people. We see it again in chapter 28, verse 15, when in addition to reiterating the promise of land and family, God says to Jacob, behold, church, hear this, I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to you. His presence becomes central to the fulfillment of his promises. Folks, this really is the, the biblical understanding of God's promises being fulfilled. It's, it's less about the gifts and more about the giver. It's, it's less about the specific land and the specific people and more about who is able to give these things. Right? Even as we progress through our Bibles and move towards the New Testament, the, the evidence, the, the proof of prosperity from God in life is not seen only in material possessions. It's, it's not only about the land. Folks, the promised land is going to be taken and removed and stolen from God's people almost countless times throughout Scripture. It's not about having land. It's not about having a national identity alone. As, as in the New Testament, we see God's people scattered throughout the world. No, more than all of it, it's about God's presence. It's about his promise to be with his people and to never forsake his people, to never turn his back on them. God promised this to Isaac, and church, he promises it to us through Isaac this morning. He promises it to his covenant community. And God has been faithful to this promise. Friends, he sent his only son, Jesus, to live among us, to tabernacle among us, to dwell among us, to, to live in our midst. Je Jesus was, was physically with us. We beheld his glory. We beheld his presence. He lived with his people. And when he came, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Folks, Jesus is the kingdom. 
His presence and his reign is our hope and our security in all of life. It's not first about physical land or security. It's about Jesus. And now, now that Jesus has ascended back to the Father. He's sitting on his throne as, as high king, and we still have his presence with us through his spirit. God promised his presence to Isaac and to his descendants, and he has been faithful to that word in and through his son, Jesus, and in and through his Holy Spirit, whose presence is with us even right now in this moment. This is the promise of God's presence. Folks, that brings us to our second point this morning, point number two, the patience of God's presence. As wonderful as the promise of God's presence sounds to our hearts and to our souls, friends, isn't it true that because of our own weakness, because of our sinfulness, we often doubt whether this presence is really with us or not? And when we doubt whether he's with us or not, we often fall into greater and greater sin as his people. That's exactly what we see in the next section, in verses 6 to 12. Verse 6 says that Isaac settled in Gerah, and when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. He does exactly the same thing that his father did not once, but twice in chapter 12 and in chapter 20. In, in a moment of fear and uncertainty and unbelief, he, he doubts whether God's presence is really with him. And so he lies about his wife being his sister. It is a blatant lack of faith in God's promise to be with him, and it is a gross sin against his spouse. He endangers her before other men. And then verse 8 says that when he had been there a long time, so the threat doesn't even seem to be that real. He'd been there a long time with Rebecca as his sister and nothing's happened, so it doesn't even seem to be a founded fear. But when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebecca, his wife. Now, we don't know exactly what this word laughing means. It, it could speak to some form of sexual intimacy of, of some kind, or it could just speak of, of speaking freely and casually with each other in a way that was clearly as a husband and wife and not as brother and sister. Either way, Abimelech looks out and he says, he knows this woman is his wife, not his sister. And so he, he goes to Isaac, he yells at Isaac and says, what were you thinking Isaac tries to explain his lie, and then Abimelech just warns all the people, do not touch this man, do not touch this woman, leave them alone. Folks, it's the same exact sin as we saw in Abraham's life, not once, but twice. How can Isaac not know better than this? Didn't he know about his, his dad and Sarah and what they had done? How could he sin in exactly the same way? But folks, what a picture this is for us. This is a reflection of, of our reality, isn't it? We fall into the same sins over and over and over again. Through this story in, in Genesis 26, Scripture is just showing us in a remarkably clear and very sobering way that our sinfulness is an inescapable part of who we are. See, in Scripture, when, when something is repeated three times, in Scripture, particularly in Hebrew, when, in Hebrew when, when something is repeated three times, it's often to show how profoundly true it is. 
to say something three times is to say this thing is really, really, really true. And so by way of example, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he goes into the throne room, he hears the cherubim shouting out about God himself. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They are saying this is the ultimate holy one. There is nobody like him. And then in the New Testament, when when Peter sinfully denies Jesus, he doesn't just do it once. He doesn't happen to do it twice. He does it three times. The reality of his fearful denial was was unmistakable. And so it is here. Whether intentionally on Moses' part or just the natural effect of reading it three times over, the sinfulness of our forefathers is clear. It's unmistakable. This is who our forefathers were. They were fearful little men. They were cowards, lying and deceiving in order to protect themselves, even when it meant throwing their spouse under the bus. Folks, this is unmistakable in our lives too, right? Church, we we don't like to talk about sin in our day. But if we were honest, we, we would have to admit that a right description of who we are as people, a right description of who we are and how we live is not holy, holy, holy like God himself, but rather a right description is sinful, sinful, sinful. That's who we are. Listen, if you're a non-Christian here this morning, let me just speak to you very briefly. If if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, have you ever wondered why you can't live a better life than you do? Have you ever wondered why why you keep making mistakes, why you keep saying and and doing the, the things that you know that you shouldn't do over and over? Friends, God's word says that that is because you are a sinner, that you are in rebellion against God and that your very nature is to be sinful. And friend, your life will not change until you find an answer to that deep internal problem. You can go to all the AA meetings in the world. You can join self-help groups. You can get life coaching. You can read every self-improvement book on Barnes & Noble shelf. But you will still be haunted by your weakness. Why? Because this is your reality. It's who you are. It is inescapable in yourself. But folks, in the midst of this inescapable reality, there is hope. There is hope for us here because God's presence is so patient towards his people. He is so wonderfully patient. Isaac is a sinner, it's unmistakable, but God's presence doesn't go anywhere from him. If you look down in verse 24, you see that even after this gross sin on Isaac's part, God continues to promise his presence to Isaac. Even after he sins in this way, God God doesn't go anywhere. He's right there by his side. How patient he is, church. Friends, the entire Bible is just a long illustration of how God's patience towards his people cannot be exhausted Though though we abound in sin, he abounds in steadfast love and kindness. Though though we rebel against his holiness, he is patient towards us in our sinfulness. Scripture says that he is slow to anger. He's slow to anger with you this week. He will not remove his presence from those that he has shed his blood for. Folks, think about Moses and the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 32 Immediately after being delivered from slavery in Egypt, they should have been singing and dancing with gratitude for years. But within moments, they get a golden calf and they worship it as if it's God himself. It's gross sin. 
And then just two chapters later in Exodus 34, God declares who he is. He says, I am the Lord who is merciful and gracious. Listen, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Israel seriously tests his patience, but Yahweh, our faithful God, proves his patience over and over and over again. Friends, think about the book of Hosea in our Bibles. I've read Hosea in my devotions from this past week. Are you you familiar with this story? That the book of Hosea is about how God tells a prophet who is named Hosea to go and to marry a prostitute. To marry a woman who had given herself sexually to countless other men. And a woman who, who even after marrying Hosea was still sexually unfaithful. Her name's Gomer. Gomer, Hosea's wife, could not have been a worse wife to Hosea. She was unfaithful again and again. But God called Hosea to be faithful to her. Why? To be a picture of God's faithfulness and love and patience towards his people. Church, we are like that prostitute We have committed adultery before God countless times as we have given ourselves to false gods and worshiped false idols. We we prostitute ourselves to this culture and to this world and to our own sinful desires all the time. We're, We're so faithless, and yet God is patient and kind and so faithful. Friends, think about Jesus, our Savior. He he went through three years of ministry with with 12 knucklehead guys as his disciples. Think about Peter, James, and John. Oh, they required some incredible amounts of patience. They were so slow to learn. They made the same mistakes over and over, but yet Jesus didn't go anywhere. He remained with them, even with Judas. He was patient in their weakness, even as he knew that their weakness and their sin was daily leading him towards death on the cross. Folks, think about how patient God has been with the church over the many centuries. Ever since the day of Pentecost, the the presence of God has been with the local church through the gift of his Holy Spirit. And even when the church is remarkably messed up, God has been so faithful to remain with local congregations. He's been patient with the church. He was patient with Corinth when their pride got the better of him. He was patient with the churches in Revelation when they fell out of love to him. His, His presence is faithful to his church despite how weak the church can be, which is good news for us today, church, because we are a confused bunch in our day. The church in America is a confused place. Who are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to do? There's so much division. But friends, God's presence is with us. He continues daily to give us his spirit and to guide us by his word. Friend, think about yourself this morning. How many times have you failed him? How many times have you fallen short? How many times have you silenced his spirit's conviction in your life and just told yourself, it's okay, I'm just going to keep moving on. I've confessed it in, in my own way. I'm good. How many times? But friends, he hasn't left you. He will not remove his presence 
from you. He is committed to you, and he has demonstrated that commitment in no greater way than in sending his son Jesus to die in your place. And he's now given you his spirit. You are, 1 Corinthians says, the temple of the living God. And so listen, sinner, 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 listen up. You are forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. You are indwelt by the spirit of God. If you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot sin beyond the patience of your Savior. You can grieve him. You can distance yourself from him because of your sin, but he will be forever patient with you, and his patience will lead you onward. Sin has left a crimson stain, but now he's washed us white as snow. Oh, praise the one who paid our debt and raised us up from the dead. The patience of God's presence. That brings us to point number three, the purpose of God's presence. Folks, the the patience of God through the gospel towards us in our sin this is not just something that we should celebrate once and then quickly move on from. No, the, the patience of God through the gospel towards us in our sin is something that, we should, that should become our identity and that we should carry with us like a banner over our lives. N- knowing and remembering the promise and the patience of God's presence will direct us forward. It will give us as the church purpose in this world. Friends, did you notice what God said about Abraham in verse 5? He, he promises to be with Isaac and to bless him. He says about that, verse 5, I'm doing this because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This is actually very interesting because those words, commandments, statutes, and laws, sound a lot like what God had given to Israel after Moses on Mount Sinai. And so it seems like Moses is, is writing back into the story some of the, the words and phrases that Israel would have been familiar with because God didn't really give a whole list of commandments and statutes and laws. But he's trying to say Abraham was faithful in the way that I'm calling you to be faithful. Now, God is not saying that Abraham earned the favor of his presence through or by his obedience. God is not saying that it was Abraham's good works and good deeds that brought the blessing of his presence. No, like we saw in chapter 17 when he was circumcised, it was that Abraham was demonstrating his faith and his willingness to accept God's covenant through his obedience and through his circumcision. His obedience is the response to God's grace. Church, obedience flows from a heart that has been won over by God's grace and love. That's where obedience comes from. It's a response to something done for us. It was certainly that way for Abraham, and now we see in our text that it was that way for Isaac as well. Verses 12 to 33 really show us in a very succinct way how Isaac, much like his father, did not allow his sinful mistakes to become his identity, but rather how he responded to the grace of God in his life. Abraham got got eight chapters to show us that, but Moses summarizes how Isaac responded in obedience in in one single chapter. And, And what we see here about Isaac's obedience is that it's very similar to Abraham, which shows us the continuation of the covenant and God's activity in their lives in a particular way. We we see in these verses a struggle over land and over wells of water. Folks, that struggle for land should remind us of when Abraham and his nephew Lot had to decide who got the better land all the way back in chapter 13. 
and how Abraham trusted God to provide for him and let Lot have the better portion. And we see here that, that like Abraham, Isaac did not cling to his earthly possessions in that way either. Isaac actually seems to be even a bit of a, a peacemaker here. He, he moves forward out of Gera by faith when trouble and conflict arises. He, he doesn't fight for his own position or power. He moves on willingly. He, he moves on, and it says in verses 17 to 18, that he redigs and renames the wells of water that his father had dug. And that's a, that's a demonstration of his solidarity with Abraham and with God's covenant. Verse 25 tells us that he builds an altar and worships the Lord. Folks, he even shows godly patience and hospitality to Abimelech in verse 30, just like Abraham showed hospitality in chapter 18. It's very clear that in this succinct chapter, Isaac did not allow his sin to identify him, but he trusted God and began to live for God. God's patience and forgiveness brought peace and purpose to Isaac's life. He obeyed God with his entire being. And he obeyed because of what he had already been given. The, the riches of God's covenant promises with Isaac, the promise of his presence enabled Isaac to live obediently before him. Listen, did you notice how verses 12 to 16 speak of how rich Isaac became? It says that he reaped a hundredfold. Verse 13 says that he became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. If we were the prosperity gospel, we would have a whole sermon on this verse alone. But folks, listen, we, we may not have the same material blessing as Isaac, and we probably shouldn't expect it at all. This world might not ever call us very wealthy like it does here, but that does not mean that we are poor, church. No, we are rich in God's grace and in God's spirit. We have, in a special way, his presence with us, even more than Isaac did because of how Christ has come and given himself for us. We're rich, church, rich in forgiveness, rich in faith, rich in hope, and the riches of God's grace, the, the heavenly blessings are ours in Christ Jesus. His spirit is alive in us, directing us, giving us purpose to, to live live for him, enabling us day by day to live as we are called to live. Second Peter 1 says you have everything that you need through Christ for life and godliness. God's presence within us through his forgiveness and the gift of his spirit enables us to live as we are called. Listen to this quote from R. Kent Hughes about this text. He says, believers, here is a window into our own souls. It is one thing to theologically affirm that God is omnipresent, but it is quite another thing to have it dominate and inform us day in and day out. To embrace the sure knowledge that God is spatially present and more specially present to bless and protect us. What a difference this makes in our lives. Recognizing God's presence crushes the temptation to compromise. God's presence puts our fears to flight. It instills confidence and steel. It protects us and our loved ones. It upholds the name of God. Isn't that good? No, knowing the peace of God's presence in our lives, church, it crushes temptation to compromise. Just like for Isaac, he, he, he didn't need to get angry at Abimelech. He didn't need to fight back for his position. Church, so we 
cannot respond to the attacks that come against us, to the slander that is thrown at us, to the conflict that we have at work or at home or with our neighbors. We do not need to fight for our own position and power or reputation. No, as we cling to Christ, he enables us to walk by faith and to obey him and to honor him in all these areas. We don't, we don't need to clean earthly possessions. We don't need to become rich. We don't need to idolize material things. We can be generous with what we have. We can be hospitable even as Isaac was here. So church, we can boldly and fully grow in Christ. We can confess our sins and come into the light and not be afraid that we will be cast out. We don't need to hide our sins. We can live in community. What, what hope we have and how that hope should direct us how that hope should give us purpose. Church, you and I might not have 15,000 books written about us, but that does not mean that our lives have no purpose. Isaac might not have any more than one chapter devoted to him, but that does not mean that his life had no purpose. No, his life mattered. Why? Because God's presence was in his life, and it's the greatest reality of his life, and it gave significant meaning and purpose to his life. We respond to God's patience with active obedience and holiness before him. And wonderfully, church, wonderfully, we do not do this alone. God does not save us individually. No, he calls us to this life of faith and obedience with other people as a church, as a covenant community. And that, that brings us to our fourth and to our final point this morning. Point number four, the people of God's presence. Very briefly this morning, look at verses 34 to 35. It says, when, I, or I'm sorry, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemeth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And listen, they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. What we have here is a, a sad contrast. Even as Isaac obeys God, his one son Esau marries outside of the covenant community. He marries two women from the nations that God had called his people to be distinct from. And it says that those marriages made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This is a not so subtle way of God promoting the value of the covenant community. His chosen people. Even as throughout the rest of this chapter, we see Isaac doing things that are in solidarity with his father Abraham. He, he redigs the wells. He renames them in verses 17 and 18 in the same way as his father did. He's, he's united and in solidarity with the covenant community. God, God is showing that, that even though Isaac had only one chapter written about him, his life mattered because it's a part of the story of redemption and a part of the community that God is redeeming to himself. But then Esau marries outside of the covenant community and it makes life bitter. It's such a strong contrast. Friends, the text is showing us how God intends for his presence to reside not among us individually, but among us as a whole, among his covenant community. Today, the church, we are called to be distinct from the world and we're called to be distinct together. Folks, do our lives matter? No, nobody's going to write books about us. The best I hope for is a birthday card for my mom. What, what, what significance do we have? Are we just placeholders in the story that God is writing? No. 
Our lives matter because God's presence is with us through the gospel and because we are now being built up into the covenant community which will last for eternity. And together we will declare God's glory and goodness. You know, one of my favorite biographies about Abraham Lincoln is called Team of Rivals. It's a story about how Abraham Lincoln, when he was elected president, very intentionally chose to to select men to be on his cabinet who were very different from himself. Different politically, different by personality, different by, by temperament. And people said this makes zero sense. But he knew that as different people worked together and benefited from each other and sharpened one another, that the work that they could do would be extraordinary. The greatest way To have your life matter is not make your life about yourself, but to treasure the presence of God in your life and to allow his presence to give you purpose among his people. We will live our richest lives, not not as we blaze our own trails and polish our own resumes, but as we in humility treasure God's presence in Christ Jesus and as we join ourselves to his redeemed church through fellowship and community and as we seek to live for him together. This is why we love the local church, Redeemer. This is why we love church membership and want to continue to hold it out as a scriptural norm for God's people. We exhort you to be an official member of a local church. We may not have books written about us, but our lives will have significant and lasting influence, not as we make for a name for ourselves, but as we allow God to build our lives into his covenant community, his bride, the church. And so may God give us the grace to live for him. 